The scripture reading for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But in each, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let us pray for Jeff. Dear God, we are thankful for Jeff. Um, thankful for uh, his presence here today with us, Lord. When he preaches and teaches the word, Lord, we pray that may you speak to us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you um, in our midst right now. Um, we welcome you into our heart, our mind, into our soul. Lord, I pray that may we, as we listen to your word, may we be encouraged, may we um, be edified, may we um, yeah, be blessed by you, by your servant, Jeff. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much for your prayers, and it's a delight to be with you. Hello. You're a rather uh, wide group here. I have to... <laughs> I have to take you in um, and uh, work on my neck muscles, I guess. It's a delight to be here, um, and I see many familiar faces. Lots of you have had connections to Regent College over the years. Some of you are graduates like Daniel Fabiano. I must say he looks magnificent in a bow tie. And I think a new requirement should be every Sunday morning he shows up wearing a bow tie. Can, can someone? Okay. All right, consider that one done. That's, that's great. But uh, a number of you have studied at Regent. A number of you have been out to our events. Some of you are financial supporters. Some of you are alumni. Holly Rail used to work on our staff. 
So um, Maria Bitterly is the one who keeps me organized, uh, and I wouldn't know which end is up without her, as she can tell you. So uh, it's just uh, lots of connections over lots of years between First Baptist and Regent College. You've been around for over a century, and Regent has been around for around 50 years. Uh, and so there have been lots of links that have grown over all of those decades together. So it's really a delight to, to be here. Part of the invitation uh, that I received in coming to be part of this series about seeking the peace, the shalom of the, of the city, uh, included the responsibility that, that I would pick the text that you, we would look at this morning. So that's quite a responsibility. Uh, and I thought, well, what, what is a text that is particularly directly related to Regent's ministry that it would be helpful to open up and have us spend some time with? And this one was kind of obvious, really. It's kind of a no-brainer. Some of you who know our building well out uh, at the UBC have uh, maybe even seen that the cornerstone of the building, which, um, if you're getting your geographical bearings, is the northwest corner of the building, the northwest entrance, um, has a cornerstone. When our building was built in 1988, and the cornerstone is from verse 12 of what we've had read to us, to prepare God's people for works of service. So if there's a biblical text that is, in a sense, the theme verse, uh, the theme passage of Regent College in our many decade history, it would be this text from Ephesians chapter four. There's hardly anything I could think of that captures what Regent's about in a more direct way. It's a magnificent text that was just read to us, and so I want us to spend some time with it. And um, if you have a text, uh, if you have that, a Bible, if you have a phone that has a Bible, if, if you have it memorized, bring it up in your memory. Um, and uh, it'd be good to, to have this near to you. To equip God's people for works of service is embedded in this passage that's on our cornerstone, but it's it's tucked into the middle of this amazing text that was read to us. And chapter four is the beginning of a whole new section of Ephesians. So to set the stage for what we'll look at under sort of three headings, first of all, just let me just say a little bit about the background that gets you up to chapter four. The beginning of chapter four, uh, as was read as a prisoner for the Lord then, because Paul is in prison, literally at this point, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So he's turning the page, in a sense, on a new section of this letter. The first three chapters are magnificent. And what they're magnificent at doing is really two things. It's the first chapter or so is really laying out the gospel. It's laying out God's plan from before the beginning of time to unite all things under Christ. And the word all becomes really important, as we have sung several times already this morning. To unite all things under Christ, God has blessed the world with this amazing story of the gospel. God purposed from the beginning of all things that all things would belong to Christ and come under his headship, his lordship. Along the way, the whole story is told of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 2, it tells us how we enter the story, which is by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So the gospel is on display, and he is overwhelmed and thrilled with the news that he has to share. 
He bursts into prayer, and he offers us a prayer in chapter 1 to enter into this marvelous gospel story. It's a great gift, this amazing prayer. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to explain this amazing, miraculous thing called the church. What's amazing and miraculous about it, especially in New Testament terms, is that it is the union of Jew and Gentile together into one people, which previously was completely unthinkable and impossible. This is a marvel. This is gospel good news that there is one church of Jesus Christ, the renewed people of God, that are Jew and Gentile together. It's amazing good news. It's a treasure, and it takes quite a lot of effort by Paul and others in the New Testament to explain, now, how is that possible again? Like, could you, could you tell me about that? So no doubt they spend a lot of time as apostles teaching about this, and New Testament letters actually spend a lot of time explaining that very thing. So the gift of the gospel of salvation in Christ and bringing all things under his lordship leads to a church. It issues in a church which is Jew and Gentile together, and that Jew and Gentile is a miraculous new people of God, a gift of God. A precious treasure of the gospel is that all of the ethnic diversity of the world can be brought together as one in a new community, a new family, a new people of God. Jew and Gentile ethnic groups that had nothing to do with one another and nothing in common. It's good to think about that just in the context of a very multicultural city like Vancouver. But the one place that all the nations of the world are united is not the United Nations in a building in New York City, but the one place the nations of the world are truly united is in Christ and in this thing called the body of Christ, the people of God. It's glorious good news, and it's mind-boggling. And Paul is thrilled with this, and he wants to remind the Ephesians about this glory of the gospel, and included in the glory of that gospel is this new church this new and renewed people of God, and it is a marvel. He can hardly get over the thrill of it. And he will have already have spent two years in Ephesus talking about all this stuff. <laughs> and yet he spends three chapters reminding them of all of these things. And then he says, <clears throat> now, what are we going to do with all this? Where does it all go? He says, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord, I'm over here in prison now, folks, I urge you to lead a life worthy of the calling you have received. The calling that they have received is this gospel. The gospel is a summons to respond in faith and trust and obedience to the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's a calling that they're responding to. How do they live into that? How do we live in light of the glorious good news of the gospel and the miracle and marvel of a united people of God from every possible background as one people in Christ. What do we do with that? How do you live that? Where does it go? What does it mean? That's what the second half of the book is all about. So he gets down to some ethical instruction along the way. It gets pretty nitty-gritty. Talks about our work lives, our family lives, our life in the world, the life of witness, and there's some specifics there. That's coming in the rest of the book, the second half of the book. But the passage I want us to look at now is really the beginning of chapter 4, which tells how it is possible to live a life worthy of the gospel. How is it possible to receive this good news and live accordingly? What is it that makes that happen? 
What is it that makes it possible to live out all of these instructions that he's going to talk about? And all the advice he's going to give about being in the world and being in the workplace and living in the family and so on. Where does it all come from? How does it all happen? That's what our text is about. And that's why this little passage is so important. So, are you with me? Yes. All right, good. So now we're ready to start. Okay, are you ready to start? All right, that was all just preamble to get you on the right page. So we're going to be picking up then from the first main theme, and in my title you've seen Gospel Made Unity. Okay? So it's like his mind is still so enthralled with this miracle of the good news of the gospel bringing together one people of God, Jew and Gentile, all the nations united in Christ. He can't hardly get over it, but that's so important, he wants us to be sure that we are passionately committed to it and that we are living it. That's the first point. Before you get to all the details, be zealous for the unity of the church. Be zealous, be eager for it, be concerned for it. It says here in the, in the translation in the NIV, keep it, but that's not strong enough. It's not just keep it, maintain it in a passive kind of way. It's eagerly look after it, not only preserve it, but build it and grow it. Take this really seriously that we are one people from all of the different ethnic backgrounds of the world possible, united in Christ. We are a unified body of Christ. Make every effort to keep that unity because it is God's gift. It's not our own doing. It's not something that we invented. It's a gift of the gospel. And because it's a gift of the gospel, it's ours to maintain and to steward, you might say. It might be that there's particular threats that are already perking up in Ephesus to threaten that. It's always a threat that one ethnic or racial group feels superior to another. Am I right? Yeah. That's probably in the atmosphere. It's in the culture for sure. He wants to make sure that any hint of a superiority of one group or the other is squelched and that all are one in Christ and it is our job to make sure the church continues to be all one in Christ. It is much harder to live a life pleasing to the Lord, much harder to live, as it says here, a life worthy of the calling we have received in a fragmented, disunited, fracturous church. It's much harder to get on with that job, which is our core job in response to the gospel, if we are a divided people. A united people, one in Christ, is the condition for that pursuit of godly living together, of faithful service in the world. Are we really concerned about this? I read a variety of commentaries on this passage in preparing for this. I'm an academic, I've got to do that kind of thing. But one of the scholars writing about this said something very striking to me. He said, we, you and I, contemporary readers of his book, we really do not care much about unity. It's very striking. It's like, wow. If that's true, then we're really out of line with the Apostle Paul who cared passionately about unity of the church. Because it makes for our maturity as Christians and a mature body to be united, to recognize who we truly are, and therefore, he says, be zealous 
That's really the word. Be zealous for the oneness of the church. And how are you supposed to go about being zealous for the oneness of the church? It's very interesting what, what it says here. Um, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So that's pulling together two things that we're not very good at keeping together. Zealousness and humility. People that are zealous for the Vancouver Canucks have to be humble about being a zealous fan of the... Well, the humility part, if you're a Canucks fan, comes easily, I suppose. Um, but how do you keep zeal and humility together? Gentleness. Gentleness is the word. It's amazing, right? Patience, gentleness with zeal. Like so many things that seem impossible to us, they become possible in Christ by the gospel in the Spirit. But that's our task. It's to ongoingly, it says, be completely humble and gentle, but it's not a commandment. It says, while you're being humble and gentle, be zealous for this oneness. It's a way of life. It's a way of being. This is how we are now as gospel people. We're humble and gentle, but we're zealous because this really matters to us. It really matters to us, so maintain it. And, and what's the reason behind this? He says, well, no, just because you, know, you might not think it's so important. You may, you, may, you may be like these contemporary people in Vancouver who don't really care much passionately about unity. So then he pulls out the big theological artillery here. Did you notice? What does he say? Like, why? Why care about this? Why be zealous about this? Why bother? Here's why. Notice how many times the word one comes up. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you get all those alls? And do you get all those ones? Seven. Seven ones. Seven, the perfect number. Seven ones. The whole story that I've been telling you, he's basically saying, oh, Ephesians, I've been telling you for years, and now I'm writing again in three chapters, up until the point you're reading this, is all about this oneness. There's only one gospel. There's only one God. There's only one Christ. There is only one spirit. There is only one faith, one baptism, one Lord. That's all there is. And how would you think that there are two, three, four, or five churches? It makes no sense. The whole gospel is about one over all. Therefore, there is one church for all. So what he's pulled out here is the deepest theological roots he can think of for the unity of the church. That's why he's zealous about it, and that's why we should be zealous about it too, because this is gospel good news. So there is a gospel-made unity of the church grounded in all the good news he has preached for years and that we have received as God's people. It matters. It's shockingly important. Little footnote about Regent College now. We have for over 50 years been the beneficiaries of a tremendously multicultural, multi-ethnic staff, 
faculty and student body, especially student body. We have students, graduates in over 120 countries. If I gave you a quiz right now, you could not name 120 countries. <laughs> could you? Make that your lunchtime conversation with whoever you're having lunch with. Just get out a piece of paper, try to write down 120 countries. It's been a tremendous gift to have a deep sense of the oneness of God's people with all of the amazing diversity that that represents. All the backgrounds, all the cultures, all the languages, all of that. It's an amazing gift. We experience that, we live that, we feel that. It's an incredible privilege. Group of students, I was just teaching recently, 20 students from 14 different countries. Where else would that ever happen? It's an amazing gift. We, we treasure it, we value it, we love it. It's important. We wanna honor one another. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. We do step on one another's toes. We don't always understand one another all that well. Sometimes we even hurt each other. Unintentionally, I'm sure, but we fumble and bumble over our cultural and ethnic differences. We do. We're fallen human beings like everyone else. You are too. But we prize and value the unity of the church. It's a gift of the gospel. And that kind of community is found nowhere else in the world. So all this discussion about one, seven theological grounds of oneness, and all of these alls, right? One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Then he says, but. But, why is there a but? Hmm, what's going on here? It's the shift from the all of the alls to each, right? But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So now we're on to the next piece of this amazing text, which is make, how, how is it possible for us to live a life worthy of the gospel? How, 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 right? The second one is about a gospel-made ministry of God's people. But notice how he gets into this, right? But to each of us, grace has been given. Grace is such a theme of the gospel, of course. This is a section about the workings of God's grace by the varied gifts that Christ has given his church. And these are gifts of the ascended Christ. So he has this little theological digression because academics and scholars and people like apostles like digressions from time to time. So he's getting, he's thinking about these, these are gifts of the ascended Christ. So then he says, well, who is the one who has ascended but the one who has descended? Again, why has Christ descended to the dead and risen to the heavens to fill all things with his presence? All things, of course. He's on an all train here. So Christ himself did what? What are, what are these gifts that are given that are so important? What are these gifts of the ascended Christ to his church to make it possible for us to live a life worthy of the gospel? What do you think they would be? Listen. So Christ himself, Christ himself, not just anybody, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers... Now, that's probably not what you expected. When Paul talks about gifts that Christ gives, he's often talking about, in a sense, our gifts, different spiritual gifts, as we call them, the different capacities that, that we have to serve Christ. But that's actually not what he's talking about here. Don't, don't read that into this. 
The gifts that he's talking about here are people. The gifts he's talking about are leaders. And they're all leaders that have one thing in common. Let's think about this for a minute. Apostles. Who are the apostles? The apostles are the ones who hung around with Jesus, got the story, and transmitted it to the church. They're the ones who transmit the story having been companions of Jesus. Yeah, that's who the apostles are. What about prophets? True of Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets, they are people who speak the word of God to you having heard from God what this particular people need to hear from the Lord. They are speakers of God's word. What about evangelists? His next category. Evangelists in New Testament terms are people who go from place to place proclaiming the gospel, just as you would probably expect that word to mean. They're word people. Prophets are word people. Apostles are word people. And then the last one is pastors and teachers. And there's a big scholarly debate whether this is five groups of people or four. Mostly, I think the weight is towards its four groups of people, and this is a hyphenated pastor-teacher. The pastor-teacher is the one who lives in congregational life and brings the word of God to the people as a teacher of the gospel. So the gifts of the ascended Christ in his glory is for our sake the building of us up towards faithfulness, towards living a life worthy of the gospel in the form of word people. The leaders of the church are word people who bring the word of God to the people so that it might actually take deep root in their lives, in our lives. Right? Do you remember what we sang just a minute ago? Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to re receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. That's exactly it. It's exactly what this whole thing is about. Even the Christ-likeness that that Getty hymn refers to is the point that Paul's now going to make. That's what the purpose is of all of this engagement with God's word so that we cannot be faithful to the gospel and live it out in our everyday lives without the teaching and the renewal of our minds by the word of God. The, that's the essential ingredient in all of this. It's marvelously important. So listen to this. So Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. That's the purpose. That's what they're doing. They're not standing up and showing off how erudite they are. They're not giving you nice academic footnotes on this and that. No, that's not what they're there for. They are there to equip the people of God for works of service. So let's think about that. Each one of those words along the way is important. This is what's the cornerstone of Regent College. So I do have a few things to say about it. <laughs> to equip. What is it to be equipped? Think about that. What is it to be equipped? Well, it means to be equipped, um, I think, with a right understanding, with knowledge, knowledge fitted to the task at hand. If you're equipped, let's just take an example. If you're equipped to be a firefighter, you'd have to understand how firefighting works and how fires work, 
and where they're likely to come from and what kinds of fires there are that you're going to be putting out. You'd need to have some knowledge and understanding for the task at hand. To be equipped means to have a proper clothing or uniform for the work there is to be done. If you're a firefighter, you need a particularly important uniform. You'd have to have some necessary tools for the job, too, wouldn't you? And you would have learned the skills of handling those tools in the circumstances that you find yourself in. And you probably would have done some practice runs just to see how it goes before you're actually let loose on a real fire. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So something of that kind of equipping is what these word people, these leaders who are word-bearing people in the congregational life of um, Ephesus and today, <laughs> this is what they're meant to be doing. They're meant to be equipping us the people of God, in those kinds of ways. To equip his people for works of service. Now, with all the alls that you've heard about in this passage over and over and over again, all the alls would suggest to me that the only way to understand that his people here is that that means all his people. That means everybody. That means young and old. That means uh, tall and short. That means male and female. That means black and white. That means everybody. All is all to equip all God's people for diakonia, for service. There's no distinction here about who's being equipped for service. Everybody is serving. This is gospel good news. Everybody has a place serving Jesus. Right? We have all, through the gospel, become his servants, everybody. And what's important to say about that is that it's not a specialized, professionalized thing, being a servant of Jesus. It applies to all of us, right? All of us. Diakonia, the word here, is the standard New Testament word for servant. So some translations say prepared for ministry, some prepared for service. That's the range of a word like diakonia, from which you get the word deacon, right? Which you have in, in your structure here. So we're all, all, all of us being prepared by these word people to be equipped in this fulsome whole way to be servants of Jesus, full stop. It doesn't say only here or there. It doesn't say servants of Jesus just on Sunday, but not on Monday. It doesn't say just crossing an ocean to a new mission field, that's where you're a servant of Jesus. It's everywhere for all people at all times in all circumstances with all the gospel, having been equipped and prepared for that through the word of God. There's no boundaries around this. There's no hierarchy around this. This kind of serving is not reserved for clergy or paid professionals. It has to do with us. That's why this is the cornerstone of Regent College because the founders of Regent College, and to this day we continue to believe that the whole people of God are called into his service in every sphere of life, in every corner of the globe, doing all the things that God's people do. For some, that will be standing up and preaching sermons. For some, that will be planting churches or translating the scriptures. For others, it will be being firefighters. It will be being accountants and nurses and teachers even lawyers, 
sorry. Um, yeah. All my best lawyer jokes come from my lawyer friends, so I, I, I won't go for those right now. So um, Regent was the first graduate theological school founded ever for the laity. It was founded for the whole people of God, to use our phrase. It was so that people who are firefighters and farmers and poets can think deeply into the gospel and be better equipped to live in everyday life. So we're an extension ministry of this very teaching ministry that's talked about right here in this text. That's what we're about. Okay? That's why we think it's important. Okay, so are you with me? To equip his people for works of service, all of us, at all times, in all ways, thoroughly equipped, so that, so that, which is speaking of a purpose here, right? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what? Unity. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Two things, unity and maturity. Interesting, isn't it, how they go together? So for the apostle, you can't have unity without maturity, and you can't have maturity without unity. And that's actually something worth really thinking about. So what's he saying here? So that the body of Christ might be built up to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. This is what his prayer is for in the first two prayers are for in the first half of the book. That we would reach unity in our growing knowledge and love of Christ. Unity is going to be found in this Jesus. And what he wants for us is to be continually growing deeper and deeper and deeper in knowing Christ. Unity for us all in all of our amazing diversity, short, tall, black, white, male, female, young, old, etc., whoever we are, we will find unity together as we grow together to know and love Christ. By putting focus upon him, we actually are able to grow closer and more united together. It's a continual process. He's thinking in long-term, ongoing, gradual terms here but that we would grow in the knowledge and love of Christ. That's what this is about. Till, all, till, we, till we all reach unity in the faith, that one faith of the seven ones that we looked at, right? And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, attaining literally in Greek to his age, which means we grow up, we become adults and grown-ups, not children anymore, not children blown around by all the winds of this and that controversy and temptation, but grown-up, mature people. That's what this is all for. To be equipped is to be grown-up and mature in your faith. Therefore, stable, steady, secure, and not going anywhere. Okay? That's what this is about. Then, final section is having, having now sort of tipped himself off that this is growing mature, he tells you what it's all about. To become mature is actually to become like Christ, just as the Getty song suggested to us. 
until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceptive scheming. Right? So to be faithful to this gospel and to live it out, to live a life worthy of the calling, still means we live in the world and we're subject to all kinds of winds and waves, disturbances and destructions and temptations, and people will come and try to deceive us. That's the world we live in. That's the world of Ephesus. That's the world of Vancouver. But maturity means being stable and secure and unshakable. You're not being blown around by here and there. Your boat is not overturning in the waves. Right? How is that possible? By the growing knowledge and love of Christ and by becoming like him. Right? That's what's going on here. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the work of the gospel to make us mature. This is Christ's work within us an ongoing, gradual, continual process of growing into Christ, becoming like him. So the flow of this thinking is, okay, before we get on to how you're going to go about living your life on Monday morning, first of all, says Paul, i got to tell you how this is going to work. Right? There's a gospel-made unity of the church, which is a precious treasure, and we need to live into that unity in order to be mature. And the gift of the gospel is maturity in the very Christ who has given himself to you. And to do that, we need to be equipped. To live into that unity and maturity, we need to be equipped by the word of God taking deep root in us and enabling us to live into that unity with maturity. And then we will actually live a life worthy of the gospel, as he says then we will take up living out the truth that we have received. Does that make sense? So, so, so important. This is all brimming with the gospel. This is gospel preparation for living a gospel life. The glorious gospel of Christ establishes the unity of all God's people, which we're called to preserve, maintain, and cherish. The truth of the gospel equips all God's people for his service, diakonia, in all areas of life. The power of the gospel transforms us as his people into maturity, grown-upness in Christ when we come to look like him. We become like him. So if you put all of those insights together, you've got the vision of what Regent College is trying to do. But more importantly, you get a sense of what the gospel is trying to do. You get the sense of what Paul toiled for night and day and went to prison for, is that our unity and our maturity, living out a Christ-like life, is what his life was all about. There it is. Through Christ, we are united, equipped, and growing to become like him. So may we praise and glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
for all this glorious good news. And may we receive and live this gospel, all of us together, growing to know, love, and serve Jesus, who is Lord over all. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.